Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Today, I'm joined by my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hey, Michael. Good to be here. And today, we're going to be talking to none other than Professor Scott Galloway about a wide range of topics, everything from higher education, vasectomies, yes, vasectomies, what industry he thinks the next billionaire will revolutionize, and uh, what companies should be thinking about right now. But before we get to Professor Galloway, I want to do something a little different and talk about a show that's part of the Salesforce podcast network of shows. It's called Marketing Trends. Yep, this is a great podcast, Michael. In fact, it's the number one podcast for all things marketing. What do you love about this podcast? Well, I'm into it. Twice a week, you get to hear interviews with industry-leading marketers, including CMOs, CEOs, and thought leaders in the field. It's pretty awesome. You hear war stories, best practices from marketers who help build the Fortune 500. Well, that sounds like something our listeners would not want to miss, especially when they can hear from people who are leading the charge at companies like Lego, Caldwell Banker, and UNICEF. Yeah, it's a great show, so don't miss out. Subscribe to Marketing Trends on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to my conversation with Professor Scott Galloway and Salesforce's VP of Customer Insights, Karen Mangia. Hey, welcome to Blazing Trails. Today, we've got Scott Galloway, Professor of Marketing at NYU Stern, founder of L2, Red Envelope, Profit, and Section 4. He's a best-selling author and hosts the Prof G Show, and he's co-host of Pivot with Kara Swisher. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. And also joining today is my friend and colleague, Karen Mangia. Karen is Vice President of Market Insights at Salesforce and is author of the fantastic and timely book, Working From Home. Karen, welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Great. All right, let's get into this. Scott, in your latest book, Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, you dig into digital transformation. And boy, we've been hearing a lot about that just about everywhere. But you've got kind of a unique take that you call the great acceleration. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, it's not anything that novel at this point, but if you think about how we as a species or as man perceives time, we think of it in relationship to these astrophysical objects circling a spherical ball of hot plasma or specifically, you know, 24 hours. That's how long it takes one object to circle another. Mm -hmm. But really, time as we reference it or as we absorb it is a function of change. So by that standard, You've had a decade of acceleration. E-commerce was at 18% of retail, growing 1% a year in 2020. Within eight weeks post-April, it shot to 28%. So we had a decade of acceleration in e-commerce, home delivery of grocery, working from home, mm-hmm. parents living with their children, government spending. Everything seemed to sort of accelerate, you know, anywhere between three and four years and 20 years. So this will be the enduring feature of COVID-19 or its enduring impact will be seen as an accelerant more than a change engine. Mm-hmm. And you know, and how permanent do you think some of this changes? I mean, nobody can really tell, but what what do you think is the stuff that's going to stick? So it, it's situational. If you think about the work from home, if you speak to somebody who owns an office building, they're convinced that everything's going to go back to the way it was, and it's not. It mm-hmm. the building I worked in right out of UCLA, twelve fifty one out of the Americas when I worked in the analyst program at Morgan Stanley, they track the number of people in the building for security purposes. And it averages 8,500 people during an average weekday. And it's now 500 people. And it'll come back, but it's not going back to 8,500. So if you take out all real estate, commercial, retail, residential, you take out residential, you have a $12 trillion asset class. And it's I think conservative to say you're going to see a 
gross demand destruction of 20 to 30% across retail and office. So you're talking about the GDP of Japan kind of being dispersed, if you will, or transferred from office space to residential. So you're going to see office REITs in the office industrial complex, the restaurants that serve them get hit hard. And then the brands that serve you in the home, whether it's William Sonoma Restoration Hardware or Sonos, are going to accelerate. And we've already seen like massive increases in pricing and housing and housing suppliers. So mm-hmm. I would argue, and one of, that's one of the things I ask a management team when they tell me about their business. I say, well, are these changes cyclical or structural? And it's if you're doing well, you want to think that they're cyclical, but usually they're kind of what I call two-thirds structural. Sure, restaurants will have an easier time moving forward. We're probably going to lose a third of restaurants by name. There's just a different view of restaurants now, and there will be a different ecosystem for the winter. So I think most of it is enduring, most of the changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and Scott, when I hear you say that, the acceleration factor, I think about what's happened in the context of customer connection. And I think about so many businesses you know, that I have conversations and visit with that have these digital transformation strategies and customer experience strategies. And in an ideal world, those are connected. And what happened was everyone accelerated into a simultaneous pressure test that said how awesome or not, or how effective or not are those two strategies. And you know, what I've observed in some of these conversations and experienced is kind of the sunlight shines through the cracks of where that strategy isn't entirely seamless. And, you know, I think about what happens when some of those ways that businesses first engaged customers to create that brand impression evaporated, right? I mean, there is no waiting in the lobby, right? There is no moment where someone was physically coming into your space to intersect your brand or or couldn't connect with someone in person to answer a question. And what I think about is, as people identified where those gaps were, they also came up with new ways to connect with customers, offer support, extend a brand promise. And now you can't step backwards from that line, right? You can't say, well, we had this grocery delivery or this order ahead, but now we're going to take it back, right? People expect that. It's renegotiating, I think, what we expect from colleagues, from companies, from brands as we move forward. Mm-hmm. I agree. It makes me think about what this means for relationships with one another, you know, at a brand level with companies' relationship with customer, with relationships with companies and employees. It just seems like it's going to be fundamentally different. I know for myself, you know, having been away from people for so long and then having to try to reconnect and sit down for a dinner and just do stuff like that is it's different and takes some getting used to. I mean, Scott, how do you think companies need to think about the relationship with customers, et cetera, in this new world? I mean, it was digitizing anyway, but is this going to be a significant difference if you're not going into a store anymore, if you're not having those physical experiences? How's that going to change? I think, you know, it's situational. The relationship between a movie theater and the end consumer is just much different than it was now, or the relationship between content and the end consumer. I would say the majority of the change, if you will, if you're trying to figure out, answer that question for your business, and you sort of map out the supply chain and ask yourself, who can be leapfrogged? So Wonder Woman 1984 coming to your theaters or coming to your home is leapfrogging the supply chain of theaters. That was a, it was, it used to be kind of a key part of the supply chain. Working from home, renting your human capital to an organization without the supply chain of an office is a key shift in the supply chain, whether it's Amazon moving to your driveway versus the store. Mm-hmm. Now, there's just fundamental changes or shifts in the supply chain. Roblox saying, we'll let kids decide what games they want to play instead of game houses or game developers. Uh, so I think the 
You know, it just, it really depends on the industry you're in, but I think it's a useful exercise to go through and say, all right, who comes up with the idea, who manufactures it, who designs it, who merchandises it, who distributes it, who retails it, who serves it or provides the customer service. And then what you're sort of seeing very crudely is the guys or gals in the middle are getting leapfrogged by usually companies to leverage technology to provide more margin to the source of the value or to make the end user experience more seamless for the end customer or client. So it strikes me that it's kind of this massive disruption in supply chain. Less than 1% of doctor's visits were virtual pre-pandemic. Now it's 32%. Mm -hmm. So that might go back to 20 or 25, but that'll still be a 20-fold increase. And it's going to open up all sorts of opportunities and investment that'll make delivery of healthcare to your smartphone, to your smart speaker, to your living room, to your kitchen the reality we'd always talked about, you know, so it was supposed to happen. It never did because there's a lot of entrenched interests. So it really depends on the industry. Some industries will feel fairly unchanged and others are going to go through, uh, I think, a dramatic upheaval, including my own in education. Well, and what I hear you saying, Scott, I can resonate with in terms of, I think about it as the big impact question that so many organizations are asking now. And that big impact question is, who is our customer now? And in so many industries and for so many organizations that shifted from, you know, a supplier or a distributor who perhaps sat between you and your end customer or student or person you served or vice versa, right? It's that rethinking of the value chain. And I think it's, you know, stepping back to consider for so many organizations within that big impact question about who is our customer now, really, who do we serve? why do we serve and what's the greatest good that we're expecting to deliver from that service? And your comments and statistics there about the healthcare experience reminds me of a big global healthcare organization I've been doing some work with. And they're trying to drive home this inflection point about how the experience shifts when a patient and a doctor are interacting virtually and to try to drive home and reconsider and reinforce this new sense of purpose and service and the greatest good that could be delivered, they changed their tagline to the patient will see you now. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we're also accustomed to, you know, the doctor will see you now, but shifting that mindset of service and, and that mentality of who's first and the order in which that value chain delivers and who's in it. And really a shift in the critical moments of that experience, whether that's, healthcare or education, you know, or a business like Salesforce? Yeah. Healthcare is an interesting one because who the end customer is or who is a constituent that the majority of innovation or focuses on is a key question. So for example, the case of Facebook, the person using Instagram, the person on Facebook isn't the consumer. That's not who they're trying to add value. They're trying to add value to the advertiser. And so They'll engage in surveillance capitalism, try and figure out a way to keep you engaged, even if it's not good for your mental well-being, even if it violates your privacy, because at the end of the day, they're trying to please the advertiser with more relevant targeting and advertising. The health complex or the medical industrial complex, I think, began servicing the insurance company trying to get optimal reimbursement or trying to figure out how they got more money out of Medicare. So it was basically the entire ecosystem got shaped around the supply chain as opposed to the supply chain getting shaped around the consumer. A a mother who's managing her child's diabetes spends 12 weeks a year managing that that child's healthcare. And let's be honest, it's always a mom. So if you think about the amount of time she's spending, it's okay, I got to drive to the doctor's office. I got to wait in a waiting room because we want to optimize the doctor's time, not the patient's time. 
he or she has to get the mother has to get a referral to a specialist because God, you know, we don't want to spend money unless the doctor says you have to spend money here. She goes home. She gets another appointment. Terrible appointment. Not Google Calendar. It's calling someone and being put on hold and telling you I have an appointment in seven weeks and you saying, well, no, my child has serious asthma or whatever. I need to get in sooner. We'll call back in an hour. Back to the specialist. I mean, it's just so broken. Healthcare right now, I think of everything as sort of as retail. Healthcare is the second worst retail in the nation. And the worst is gas stations. I think our first trillionaire is going to be someone who figures out a way not only to save money, but to save time around healthcare. You know, under the auspices of TMI, I'm 56 and I'm thinking about closing up shop and getting a vasectomy. It's taken me four months to get a second appointment. I mean, I did a consultation. I'm like, why am I here? So a guy can tell me what he's going to do to me. I, it's like this should have been done over the phone and I should have gotten this done the next day. And instead it's all this of just time on time on time on calling them back. And then I even forget. It's just, it's like, okay, what is the point? We spend more money. The healthcare business is a $3 trillion business. And if you get really sick and you're really rich, it's the best in the world because you can get to the best specialist, best pharmaceuticals, best treatment. Kind of for everybody else, it's a Hyundai for the price of a Mercedes. Not even a Hyundai, it's a Yugo for the price of a Mercedes. So I think there's just enormous opportunity. If I were a 25-year-old and just an economic animal, I'd want to place myself in between healthcare and technology right now. I think it's going to be a fantastic sector for the next 10 years. Scott, you talk about this idea of the brand age giving way to the product age, which you know, we're kind of, we're talking about product development in a way and supply chain, et cetera. Tell me more about that idea. I wasn't sure exactly what you meant by that. Sure. So if you think about how the economic titans of yesteryear made a lot of money or created shareholder value is loosely what I call the brand age algorithm. And that is let's produce a mediocre product, a mediocre car, a mediocre salty snack, a mediocre beer, a mediocre shoe and wrap it in these unbelievable brand codes, youth, excellence, superiority, European excellence, masculinity, hot, sexy. And these things, by drinking this soda, I felt irreverent. By driving this car, I felt elegant. By using this hand soap, it made me feel more sophisticated. And these were outstanding associations wrapped around oftentimes mediocre products that resulted in 30 cents of peanut butter paste being worth $2 because choosy moms choose Jeff and you're a bad mom if you don't buy branded peanut butter. Mm-hmm. And that was a license to print money. And the P&Gs of the world, the General Motors of the world, just were economic titans. And then with the introduction of Google, I think people sort of pierced the veil and said, you know, if I find the best product, a brand is really shorthand or sort of a weapon of mass diligence. It helps me get to the right product. When I used to travel to London on business, which I did six, 10 times a year until a couple of years ago, I would stay at the Four Seasons or at the Mandarin Oriental. One, because someone else was paying. And two, because those brands always delivered a seven or an eight out of a 10. You know, they're just very good at what they do. But then I started using TripAdvisor, my social graph, Google, Instagram. And I found that there's a small boutique chain of hotels called the Ferndale Ferndale Hotels that were what I wanted. I want to hang out with people younger and cooler than me because it makes me feel younger and cooler than I am. I want a nice gym. I want a certain aesthetic. I want a smaller hotel. I want a hipper feel. And that's what this brand delivered against. And now there are so many weapons of diligence in addition to brand. You know, there used to be this ocean of unknown that the brand was a vessel that got you across. Nike was always going to deliver a decent experience. And instead, you have these bridges now called Google or TripAdvisor or your social graph. And so 
Great products get heard now. Great products without marketing used to be a tree falling in the forest. But if you have a vastly superior product, word gets out. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a reallocation of resources out of what I'll call traditional marketing, trying to create these brand codes or awareness into the product itself. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to mean just the specific item itself. It can be the way that it's delivered, kind of white glove installation or customer service that's outstanding. But there has been a reallocation. An example is Apple. Apple took $7 billion out of traditional brand building and put it into the stores because the experience of buying an iPhone is what makes an iPhone so great now. Or it's just going into that store, you think, I just love this brand. I want to herd with this brand. And that's part of the experience and part of the brand. So I think there's just been, in some, Don Draper has been drawn and quartered. The advertising industrial complex is kind of collapsing on itself. If you're watching a lot of commercials, it means your life hasn't turned out that well. Advertising has kind of become a tax that the poor and the technologically illiterate have to pay. And it's a business. So I think the brand era, I think the sun has passed midday on what I'll call the brand era, which is what I proselytized for 25 years. I'm like, yeah, product doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter that much. Product quality is kind of tapped out. And then digital sort of unlocked all this incredible innovation around product. I was going to say, but those dollars that were in traditional TV have, have moved to digital. I mean, it's still advertising. That model, you know, you see Instagram and Facebook, they're still growing. I was curious what your take is on Apple's new privacy features and what the impact is going to be on marketers there. Google doesn't serve me opioid-induced constipation ads because I'm not searching for opioid-induced. Google goes right to the bottom of the funnel and you identify, you say, I'm in the market for a BMW 3 Series and it says, okay. And then it says to Audi, would you like to run an ad against this guy? And Audi says, yeah, absolutely. And Facebook kind of does the same thing. So what they've done is they've taken advertising and made it much more relevant. And now it's they're at 80 cents on the digital dollar. Amazon's at 10. So basically, the dirty secret of digital marketing is it's a terrible business unless you're Amazon, Facebook, or Google. You know, you might as well be in the Yellow Pages business. It's, it's probably declining faster than the surviving Yellow Pages now. Anyways, Apple versus Facebook. I mean, I love it. You know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't like Tim Cook because he sees him as a scold talking his own book. He wants it to be a paid ecosystem where people don't endure ads. They pay for apps because Apple gets 20 to 30% commission on anyone that buys an app. So he is talking his own book. He is being a scold. I think Tim Cook uh, doesn't like Mark Zuckerberg because Mark Zuckerberg is an awful person and a sociopath. But I absolutely love it. So far, the evidence shows that 90 5% of people are deciding not to opt into Facebook's to when Apple says, if you want to have this app track you across other sites outside of the app, click here. It's an opt-in thing. That's really where they put the spear in their heart. It's not opt-out, it's opt-in. Right. And when you think about it, this is how, the thing that's going to hurt Facebook is the scrutiny this is bringing. A lot of people didn't, I think a lot of Americans didn't realize, wait, Facebook is tracking me when I'm not even on Facebook? They're listening on my conversations. They're watching what websites I go to, even when I'm not on Facebook. I don't think a lot of people realize that. And so I just think Facebook is totally defenseless here because what's their defense? Their defense right now is, well, a lot of people don't want to pay $1,200 for a phone. A lot of people are willing to make that trade-off. And there are. There's a large audience of people that will continue to watch TV and endure the ads because they want it for free, even though arguably they're not getting it for free. They're paying for the cable. But Tim Cook's response is, well, let people decide. <laughs> Fine. If they want Facebook and they want you to serve ads and they want to continue to get it for free, all I have to say is, yeah, I'm opting in. So I think this is really interesting. And it also shows a key feature of 
the companies that have gotten above a trillion, and that is a market cap, and that is their vertical. They control the end distribution. And what you're seeing is Facebook is vulnerable because they don't control the end hardware, even really the end operating system. Some people would say Facebook's an operating system, but if a billion of the wealthiest consumers in the world, which is what iOS is, it's, it's the aggregation of the billion wealthiest people in, in the world, they can turn off Facebook or they can basically kneecap Facebook. And that's Facebook's vulnerability, that's Netflix's vulnerability, that's Disney's vulnerability, is that they don't control the end distribution. Right. I mean, Facebook tried to make a phone in 20, 2009. Yeah, as did Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's like customers are almost faced now with like a different set of trade-off decisions, right? As companies are navigating all this, it's really about price and personalization, but it's also about privacy and preference, right? What am I willing to give you? What am I getting in exchange for that? How much am I willing to pay? To your point, how much is my time worth? I mean, a pretty radical shift in terms of thinking about the value of a customer or the value of a company or how that value exchange looks. And and what makes that transaction or interaction or relationship between a customer and a company worthwhile? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are essentially B2B company and B2B is just a better place to be. B2C is so competitive. If you want to get consumers to take out their credit card and enter into a recurring revenue relationship, their benchmark is Netflix. And Netflix gives them a billion dollars of content for every $1 a month they spend. And that's kind of what consumer, look at what Amazon offers. Amazon offers just, you know, 48 hour free delivery, photo storage, great video, all this Amazon music, all these things for, you know, 12 bucks a month. That's what the consumer, that's the benchmark to get a consumer to enter into a recurring revenue relationship. Whereas with organizations and corporations, they are much more promiscuous with their spend. If you can add any sort of value or create something that strengthens the relationship, they'll spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I've always thought B2B is not as romantic, it's not as sexy, but it's a much better way to build a business or make a living. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting in the context of the brand conversation is, so, you know, people use our products, a marketing cloud product, for example, to for B2C uh, activity. And how do you stand out against billion-dollar spend of Netflix and et cetera? Because there is the opportunity with a better product and social, et cetera, ways to reach an audience. But how do you compete? How do you do that if you're a smaller company? How do you break through? I'm not sure you can. I'm not here with a message of hope. I think these companies need to be broken up. If you look at, I mean, I speak to boards all the time. And the number one question I would say is, how do we compete? You know, if it's a retailer, how do we compete with Amazon? And I say, you don't. You can't. I mean, if you look at Amazon over the last 20 years, they took a dollar from the consumer and they reinvested a dollar and three cents. And every other retailer gets a dollar and can reinvest 83 cents because their investors want EBITDA. So people can be remarkably innovative when they're told, here's an infinite supply of capital and you just have to break even. So it's not as if these retailers are stupid. It's just that the fundamental shift in our economy as it relates to these disruptors, is there a boxer afforded 100% pure oxygen? And their competition, which where they have shareholders that have still demand profits. Amazon has convinced their shareholders to replace profits with growth and vision, and their shareholders have said, fine, just keep growing, keep innovating, and we'll keep giving you cheap capital. Almost every other retailer is in that position. They get 83% pure oxygen. And if you're a boxer, you can be a better boxer. But if the other guy's getting 100% pure oxygen, and I'm getting 83%, at some point, he just needs to kind of land a blow, and I'm going down. 
And that's what you're competing with with Amazon. You can't, and I wouldn't even say the term compete. They have such access to cheap capital. They have different standards to meet for their shareholders. They have overrun Washington. There are more full-time lobbyists working in D.C. for Amazon than there are sitting U.S. senators. Facebook has more people in PR and comms spinning and manicuring Mark and Cheryl's image than there are than there are reporters in the Washington Post or the Toronto Globe and Mail combined. So you have an ecosystem where there are generally just a couple, you know, there are some of the fastest growing sectors of our economy are controlled by one or two companies, which is bad. Now, the question is, why is it bad? Big in, it, in and among itself isn't bad. Success isn't bad. But those sectors, whether it's computer hardware, social, search, retail, tend to be growing more slowly now because there are no new business formation. Try and raise money to start an e-commerce site. Try and raise money to start a search engine right now. There hasn't been a social media platform of any size started in the U.S. since 2011, which is Pinterest. And this is a market that's growing 25% a year. So whereas in the U.S., 15% of companies used to be less than a year old, it's now 7%. You think, well, why is that bad? Maybe the world should be bigger companies. It's bad because the job creators, two-thirds of new jobs, are created by small and medium-sized business. So if you look at the industries that aren't dominated by a monopoly or duopoly, whether it's fintech or biotech or AI, those industries have are booming in terms of startups. So look, I, I think that, you know, how do you compete? Uh, you can't. You call your congressperson and you ask them to do their goddamn job and return to our proud legacy of antitrust when a company becomes an invasive species and starts killing small companies in the crib and prematurely euthanizing big companies. You go in and you break them up. That's what we've done for 100 years. We did it with aluminum companies. We did it with railroads. We did it with AT&T. Google was born of antitrust. If the DOJ hadn't moved in on Microsoft in 99, we'd all be saying, I don't know, bang it. <laughs> so this notion that antitrust is anti-capitalist is ridiculous. That's the argument they'll make, or they'll make some nationalist argument that the Chinese are coming for us with their AI weaponized warriors, and we have to have big companies defend them off. And there's no evidence that the national champion strategy ever works. Just look at Air France or Bombardier in Canada. So, look, I, I think a key component of capitalism is antitrust. And these companies have kind, are kind of, Washington has literally been overrun. Anyways, you asked how you can compete. The answer is you usually can't. There'll be some well-publicized victors. Lululemon's doing great. Sephora's doing great. Walmart's holding in there. But retail, generally speaking, has been a terrible place to work or invest over the last 20 years, unless you're invested in Amazon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, just at a high level, how ripe for disruption higher ed is, Scott, around the idea of schools as a luxury brand and not bringing access. I think what's interesting right now is, you know, many companies have announced that they're no longer going to require a college degree for lots of different roles and they're opening up opportunities there. And we do that with Trailhead, which is our free platform where you can learn Salesforce skills that lead to great jobs. Do you see that as a trend? Do companies need to get more involved in training? What are the big changes that you, you see coming or needing to happen in higher ed? Well, so, and I'm part of the problem. Higher ed has morphed from being the greatest upward lubricant of mobility in the history of mankind. I was raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary. Her household income was never more than $38,000 a year. And I'm here with you, and I'm economically secure because of the grace and generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the Regents of the University of California. And when I applied to UCLA, it was $1,200 a year in tuition, and the acceptance rate was 60%. And I had to apply twice. The remarkable Scott Galloway had to apply <laughs> twice to a college where the acceptance rate was 60%. This year, that tuition has gone up 30-fold, not 30%, 30x. 
in acceptance has gone from 60% to 9%. There's more kids from the top 1% of income earning households that'll get into 30 of the top 100 schools and five of the Ivies than the bottom 60%. You're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you're a top 1% income earning household. So we have slowly but surely everyone, and as you can imagine, very popular at NYU, but I think every university or near every university chancellor head of endowment or tenured faculty ask themselves the same question over and over. How do I reduce my accountability and increase my compensation? And the way we've done that is by figuring out how to become the Hermes of higher ed and take our acceptance rates from 60% down to 5%. And that creates this cartel where the second tier schools get all the runoff and can charge the same price. So kids get a Hyundai for a Mercedes price. We've raised tuition 1,400% in the last 30 years with no discernible increase in outcomes. Administrative costs and salaries, what we pay ourselves has exploded. The outcomes are no different. It's just tuition has gone up. And we've created this cartel where we've essentially become the enforcer of the caste system. And the thing that Salesforce can do, the thing that Tesla is doing, Google's doing, Apollo, which is the big uh, hedge fund. I talked to Premier today. The best thing these companies can do to really foment change is to stop fetishizing people with college degrees and to say that two-thirds of our kids are not going to end up with college degrees. Yeah, if Susie gets into MIT, rock on Susie. That's great. But two-thirds of our kids won't even get a college degree. And so is the American dream just a dream for them? So I think the short-term best thing great organizations and platforms like Salesforce can do is to say, okay, it needs to be slightly easier to get in here without a college degree than it would be to bring a gun or meth to work. I mean, you literally cannot enter the halls of these organizations if you didn't get a college degree. And usually it's a college degree from an elite university. That is the hall past the security badge for the greatest wealth creator in history, and that's the U.S. corporation. So is it 10%? Is it 30%? Is it 40%? Is it developing a series of skills-based as opposed to certification-based tests that say this single mother didn't have a chance to go to the University of California, Los Angeles. She went to junior college. She had to drop out. But guess what? She's very good at what she does. And she's taken these courses that are totally focused on CRM. She doesn't have time to take philosophy at Yale. She has to take care of a kid. She has to get done. She works hard. She's efficient. And we're going to create an on-ramp into the incredible careers we have here. We're never going to ignore the kid from Stanford. Those kids are incredible, too. They deserve what they achieve. But there's got to be an on-ramp to the great American experiment for the two-thirds of our kids that aren't going to get a college degree. And so, anyways, I think we have to drop the fetishization of the college degree, says a university professor. Yeah. I was going to say, one of the most illuminating experiences of my life is having a bachelor's and a master's degree from traditional four-year universities, and then choosing to go to community college and earn a degree as a professionally trained chef through a program where you can also earn a certificate. And what was so illuminating about that, as I thought through that experience and sort of the application to the world we live in today is... When I get right down to it, I was better prepared with a skill and a trade to go out and do something hands-on, leaving that community college experience than I was, you know, leaving with an international business degree from a four-year university. Yeah. Vocational training is something that the U.S. doesn't do as well as Europe, and it's 
We've just got to recognize two-thirds of our kids are not going to get a college degree if we've given up on them. Uh, yeah, but that the double E from Dartmouth, <laughs> she's going to be just fine. Yeah. She's right. going to be just fine. Uh, it's the kid that goes to junior college for two years for whatever reason. Most of us aren't remarkable at 18. Most of us just aren't remarkable. There are some remarkable kids, more power to them. I can mathematically prove to each of us that our children, that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. And we've got to find a path for people other than the children of rich people and what I call the freakishly remarkable from lower middle income households. Mm -hmm. So in these conversations with companies, what are you suggesting that they do? How can we make an impact here? Well, one, start recruiting. First thing is start recruiting from quote unquote second tier schools to start figuring out skills and certification-based hiring plans. So what Google's doing with certificates is really inspiring. The IT certificate, two-thirds of the people who've taken it don't have a college degree. The average salary of someone who gets a certificate is $62,000. It's 50 bucks. It's, you know, it's not a four-year thing. I think it's six months. I'm trying to do the same thing in my startup section four. We're trying to democratize elite business school education, 1% of the friction, 10% of the cost. We need to unbundle the university experience and say, okay, I just don't have the time, the resources, and the inclination to go hang out at college for four or five years, but I want to understand CRM. So if Salesforce said, we have a three, six, 12-month program where you can become, you know, you have to show a certain amount of innate ability around math, logic, critical thinking, whatever it is, some testing. But if you show those skills, we have a kind of a, a cheap and cheerful means of getting CRM certified, and we're going to hire a bunch of those kids, and we're going to treat those kids as if they have a Bachelor of Arts. I think you guys do something similar. I know you have a bunch of programs around that kind of nibble around the edges of this, but uh, we do Trailhead. What's it called? It's called Trailhead. Trailhead. Yeah, yep. and it's the the fun, free way to learn Salesforce, and you can get certification and build a career. And yeah, there's some fantastic stories, and I think it's just scaling it. It's just it's just more of it, and yeah. it's exciting that Google and others are. Or Microsoft, I think, is doing some of this too. But yeah, thinking about a, a new way of reaching all of those people and validating it. I think it sort of speaks to what you were saying, Scott, where the elite brand around college as a whole, if that's only one third of the population, and then of course the top tier schools, if you're a kid looking at that and you don't get in, you know, you just feel like, what's the point? And so I think elevating some of this vocational training and making that more validated is important. And Salesforce also has the Pathfinders program, which is apprenticeship focused. Mm -hmm. So think about taking some people who've done a few classes and then giving them some hands-on experience, vocational school style in some kind of hands-on technology experience as a pathway into that profession. So 10 years ago, I get calls all the time from parents with kids applying to college. 10 and 20 years ago, the majority of the calls were, my kid got into Wisconsin and UCLA, where would you tell her to go? Now the calls I get are... <laughs> My kid did everything right, got great grades, great SATs, captain of the lacrosse team, applied to seven grade schools, and got shut out. <laughs> and the whole house feels shame and rage right now. Like, like, you know, literally, like, what on earth are we supposed to do? And Stanford has trebled its applications. It gets three times the applications. It's increased its endowment tenfold. Hasn't increased its freshman seats by one. Harvard is sitting on the endowment that's the size of the GDP of El Salvador, they let in 1,400 kids. They got 55,000 applications and let in 1,400. And they could let in 14,000. And they went, well, that would hurt the brand. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. 
when UCLA was letting in 60% of its applicants, that brand was strong enough for me to get a job at Morgan Stanley. The brand was strong enough for me to get into another brand, Berkeley. The notion that somehow it's going to dilute their brand quality. These are all thinly veiled excuses for my colleagues to get drunk on luxury and say, we're Chanel, we're not public servants. We need to embrace big and small tech, double the capacity of our great state universities. The Ivy League, write them off. They're luxury brands. They want to feel good about themselves through exclusivity. They're going to double down. In my opinion, they're a lost cause. I think we should tax their endowments. They're not nonprofits. They're luxury brands. Where you move the needle is our great public universities. Ohio State will graduate more kids this year than the entire Ivy League combined, Florida State as well, University of California, Cal State, University of Texas. You take these programs, and I think you do a grand bargain at a legislative level, and you say, all right, we'll increase your budget by 20% if you increase your enrollments by 50% using a mix of small and big tech. And the kind of the dirty secret that profs have is that if we took the right 50% of our courses, and I'm not saying go and put them online, I'm not saying doing them asynchronously, you still want live lectures. But you could dramatically expand the capacity because right now the excuse they make, my class used to be 160 kids maximum capacity because that was the biggest classroom at NYU. Now my classes are 280 kids, but we're still charging them $7,000 or $1.96 million to hear me do this for 12 nights for two hours and 40 minutes, which if that sounds morally corrupt, trust your instincts. At some point, we should be expanding, you know, Michigan should have 60,000 students. Berkeley should increase its freshman seats by triple the population growth. We need more good, not freakishly remarkable kids getting into great schools. So it's one, figuring out on-ramps for kids who don't go to college. And two, it's taking our great public schools and giving them the same opportunity I had. The good news is, as you get older, you get empathetic. The bad news is, as you get older, you get empathetic and you start hearing the collective cries of these households. And I feel as if we kind of hear this collective scream of tens of millions of households saying, you know, boss, you got your shot. You know, where's mine? And I think about, you know, when I was applying to school and my major skill was I could make a bong out of household items. And I got in the 80th percentile on the GMAT and I had a 3.1 GPA. And college was supposed to be about how do we take good kids and turn them into remarkable kids? Now college is how do we take remarkable kids and rich kids and turn them into billionaires? It's not America. That's the fucking Hunger Games. So I think we needed an absolute switch in the zeitgeist of our society. The, America is about giving everyone a shot to be in the top 10%, not about turning the top 1% into billionaires. And I think universities are the tip of the spear here in terms of a total loss of the script becoming morally corrupt deciding that they're no longer about giving people remarkable futures and we're drunk on luxury. And I feel university leadership has really let America down. How's that? Not tough <laughs> like it is. Go on, go on. Uh, yes. <laughs> I haven't had lunch. It's clear I'm angry. <laughs> go ahead. All right, Scott, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining today. Let's keep fighting the good fight. Big fans. When I mentioned that you were going to be on, everybody was very excited. So, yeah, uh, what a thrill. <laughs> that angry guy. Get the angry, that angry guy can who you, curses all the time. Can you piss him off a little bit? I, I, I probably <laughs> right? That's easy to do. That's not a tall order. <laughs> all right, guys, I'm going to hop. Good to see you. 
That was Professor Scott Galloway speaking with Karen Mangia, Vice President of Customer and Market Insights at Salesforce. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you to Shannon Duffy, EVP of Product Marketing at Salesforce, for joining us at the top of the show to chat about Salesforce connections. You don't want to miss it. It's happening June 2nd this year. Head over to salesforce.com slash connections for all the information. So thanks again for listening today. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. Thank you.